Every week we post an event in the Bible app. So if you, you have the Bible app on your uh, mobile device and you go into the menu and under events, uh, you'll find us there and you'll find some scripture from today and some notes from today's message. You can follow along there if you'd like to. You can always save that and come back to it later too. So we're, <clears throat> we're deep into a teaching series that we've been in um, <clears throat> for a few months now, on my teaching weeks anyway. <clears throat> and the series is called Emotionally Healthy. And if, uh, if you've been away for a little time and, and you're back and you're like, wow, seriously, we're still doing that? We, we are, because apparently we have a long ways to go on this one, so we're working on it. Uh, this series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons that this is an important topic to uh, talk about and one of the reasons we believe it's important for us to be teaching in this setting and learning about is that Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then part of the process then of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and more emotionally healthy. So we started this series by asking the question, what if our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us if it doesn't catch him off guard and he's right in that moment? So, so far we've looked at a, at a the examples of Jesus' emotional health. We've talked about his spiritual practices. We've talked about the importance of silence and solitude and prayer. We talked about family of origin. That was a fun week. We talked about uh, breaking the power of the past as it relates to that. Uh, we've talked about identity and calling and accepting the gift of our God-given limitations. We talked about pace of life and hurry sickness. Remember that one? How's that going, by the way? I hope it's something that you're working on because I think we're all working. I mean, it's not something we master, so I hope it's something you're engaged in working on, the hurry sickness thing. Uh, we talked about the tyranny of living for the approval of others, and then we talked about embracing grief and loss. And just a few weeks ago, we talked about forgiveness and reconciliation, and then last time we were together on this, message, this series, we talked about anger. <clears throat> My prayer for all of us in this series, for all of us as individuals and as married couples and as families and as a church is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as we follow Jesus. That's my prayer. Speaking of prayer, would you join me? Let's pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this time with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to sit together and to open your word. God, I pray that uh, you'd reveal truth to us. You'd remind us of truth that maybe we've set aside. You'd show us new ways to apply uh, your truth. May it uh, really impact in, in our lives and have a transformational effect in the way that we do life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a woman that some of you may have heard of. Her name is, uh, well, especially if you, how many of you are movie buffs? You like really love a good story in the theater. You can put your hand up. I'm just wondering if you can move. I don't know. Are you that, just do this. Maybe your neighbor will appreciate it. I don't, how many of you like movies? How many of you like really get in? How many of you, when you go to a movie, you sit through most of the credits? All right. All right. That's what, I'm talking to you. So if you're like a movie buff and you love the behind the scenes and the creative process of movie making, there's a woman by the name of Bobette Buster. How many of you have ever heard of her? She's watched the credits. She's affectionately called the story guru. She's a TED Talk lecturer. That's how I discovered her. She's a creative uh, executive for companies like Pixar and 20th Century Fox and Disney Animation. So she's kind of a big deal. She's the person these studios go to when they're trying to figure out how to tell a good story. And, and some of these studios tell amazing stories. They're good at telling stories. 
these famous studios, though, when they're in that process and they're like, well, this is what we think the story looks like. This is what we have so far, but we, don't, we know it's not complete, so how do we do this? Something she says, that's when they call her in. And something she says, uh, and that is really profound, is this. That humans are narrative beings. I love that. We are people that are made for story. If we look back, we can see that narrative has been an integral part of our fabric since the very beginning. We look at God, we know that he's a great storyteller. And every week, you and I, we gather around this book that's full of stories and full of narrative of people whose lives have gone before us, but also we gather around this incredible story that is God's story. It's our story. It's the story of redemption, the story of transformation. So the truth is, I think not only do we love a good story, but we want a good story as humans. There's a desire in us to live into something that is beautiful and extraordinary. And the reality is, whether you're aware of it or not, there is a script or a story that you are living into in the present right now. There is something, some message or multiple messages that are shaping the way you live. And while that can be extraordinarily beautiful, it can also be scary and it can be messy because first of all, as we know, as I've already kind of alluded to, our families weren't perfect. And you, your family may be the exception, especially if you're sitting next to a parent, don't look at them right now. But we, we, we know that uh, most of our scripts that we live into come from family, which is problematic for a lot of people, for most people. It means that there are many of us who are living stories with narratives that are destined to be untrue. Which means that there's some place and a space where God has to intersect with our story, with our narrative script, and meet us there. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at a passage in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Before we get into the text, I want to give you a little bit of context about uh, what we're stepping into. Uh, the books of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, are letters. So it's like uh, in our book that we call the Bible, the Bible is really a collection of books and poems and letters. So 2 Corinthians is a letter written by a real person to real people. So it was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was uh, known best for being a church planter. He went around in the first century, traveled uh, about 20 to 30 years after the resurrection, and he traveled all over the Mediterranean Rim, and he started churches, and he launched all these gatherings of Christ followers. And he's writing a letter to these people who live in a place called Corinth. And you, you know where Corinth is, right? About 15 miles northwest of Bangor. Right, exactly. <laughs> Corinth is in the uh, southern part of Greece. <clears throat> it's one of those ancient cities that has held on to its name. It's about an hour's drive from Athens, if you were to go there today. So Paul had gathered some followers of Jesus together. He started a church there. And so he's writing some instructions. And Paul had somewhat of a complicated relationship with the church in Corinth as they often found themselves wrapped up and tangled up in a bit of sin, and that's an understatement. And so we read all kinds of things from Paul uh, in his letters to the Corinthians. So today as we read this passage, what he's talking about, Paul's actually responding to a letter that they'd sent him. He's responding to some accusations that were directed at him 
And these accusations came from some corrupt leaders in the Corinthian church, people who had gained influence and are trying to assume leadership in that church that he'd started. And throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, there are a bunch of accusations coming at Paul. And Paul's kind of like, he's like an apologetics ninja, and he defends every accusation. So here in chapter 10, he's defending one of the biggest accusations that was made against him, that they were saying that Paul was living according to the world's standards and not by God's standards. That's the accusation they'd made, and this is his response to that. So in chapter 10, he's in the middle of his his defense, and I love this because this is such a beautiful part of who Paul is. He's not trying to defend himself, as so many of us, we tend to do, but he is defending the gospel that he has preached. So uh, just a second really quick on Paul. For those of you who aren't super familiar with him, uh, Paul's this really unique guy with a really, you talk about story, he's got a really unique story. His narrative script is like no other. When he first came onto the scene, everyone knew him as Saul. It's not because that's what his name was. His name was Saul. His name was also Paul. We knew him as Saul because of where he was actually living and operating at the time. And he was a persecutor of the church. Actually, he was like the antithesis of what he had eventually became, you know. He was hostile towards the way, which is what they called those who followed the teachings of Jesus. So, So much so that he was willing to put people to death and he oversaw that if they would, you know, acknowledge and refuse to stop following this crazy rabbi from Nazareth. So Saul's on his way to shut down some more of these crazy followers of Jesus, and then he has his encounter with Jesus himself. And it's an amazing story, and Acts chapter 9 is kind of a face-to-face big moment, and his life has changed. And not only his life has changed, but his story is changed. And we see this all through the New Testament where Paul is writing, he's constantly saying, I was this and now I'm this. You used to know me as this, you'd heard of this, you knew this about me, but now this is true of me. So that's the language he uses from a man who was so radically transformed. Um, But you have to think that there were times that he must have struggled. He must have struggled with where he'd come from and what his old story had been. He must have struggled with those old scripts. You know that I was a violent man. I was a murderer. I thought I'd arrived. I was on top. He was, because we think murderer, he's some like somehow just this irreligious guy. No, he was a murderer and a a religious elite at the same time. So he's like, I was running around purging our religion from all these ragamuffin followers of Jesus. And you would think that those narrative scripts must have come back and haunted him at times. He was human, uh, but he was so adamant about how he kept the truth in front of him. And that's what I want to talk about. So let's read a couple verses here, starting with verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, this requires a little bit of explanation, perhaps. So Paul starts off, and it's like, it's like, first of all, he's agreeing with his accusers. Remember, the accusation is that he's living by the world's standards. He says, yeah, guys, I do live in the world. We all live in the world. Like, open your eyes. We live in the world. Meaning we exist in a place where there are limitations, there are frustrations, there are pains. It's the human story. There are, there are things here, struggles here, that are different than in the spiritual world. And he goes on to say that, very quickly, that we don't wage war as the world does. So why does he use this language? Because maybe that's offensive to you. Remember, Paul's writing in a time when Rome was ruling the world by, by power and by warfare. War was language they all understood. 
And Paul is at some level, even if it's subversive, he's denouncing the cultural narrative that violence is the way to resolve problems. He's essentially saying that we live in the world, but we do not play by their rules. We don't do things the way that they do things, because, but we, here's the truth, we are limited by our experience in the world, but we're not limited by the world's resources, is basically what he's saying. Verse 4, Paul goes on, the weapons or the tools that we use to fight with are not the ones that the world uses. So he's referencing actual war and actual weapons of war to create a clear distinction between the way of the people of God and the way of the world. One uses violence and weapons of violence, the other rejects them in favor of something else. So in the text we see that we're not bound by what the world can see or what the world can accomplish. He says we've been given, given something extraordinary. He says something that has divine power, and this is what we use. We use this divine power. And when we read, and he says this divine power is to demolish strongholds. And we read that. I mean, I can't think of one time this week I used the words demolish strongholds. It's not, right? It's not language we use. Uh, it's not in my vocabulary. I don't know if it is in yours, but what does he mean then, demolish strongholds? The word for stronghold here literally means a fortress. It's like the least penetrable part of a structure. It's the place that the attacker could not break through because it was so severely and strongly held together. So Paul, with this statement that we tend to, str- to pass over sometimes because we may not understand it, says this divine power actually has the ability to demolish the things in our life that we think are immovable. This divine power that we've been given, we now have the authority and the power to demolish the things that feel impenetrable in our lives. Those narrative scripts, those belief systems that feed us lies about God, lies about the world that we live in, lies about ourselves. And Paul says that the gospel, the power of Jesus, intersects with that and can absolutely crush it. So he goes on, he's going to elaborate a little bit, which is what I love, one of the, that's one of the things I love about Paul. He often does that. He throws something out there we don't understand and then he explains it. He says, not only can it demolish strongholds, he says, we can demolish every argument. This is in verse, uh, is it verse 5? We demolish every argument. Here's what this means. It literally means the, the reasoning that takes shape in your mind. Ever had those arguments in your own mind? Those arguments eventually find themselves worked out in the way you do life. So many, we times, so many times we don't even realize like, who or what we're arguing with. Sometimes we're arguing with God and aren't aware of it. So often in our minds, we're disagreeing with God about what's true, about what's actually happening, or what we should be doing, those little moments where he asks you to obey or to enter into something, and you're like, I'm pretty busy, i got stuff to do, I'm a pretty important person, I can't do that right now. So even in the tiny moments, we have reasoned in our mind that it's something we don't need to do, uh, so we don't do it. And I think God is like, pay attention to that, the arguments. This power, this divine power Paul's talking about, has the ability to to demolish every argument, everything that you've reasoned in your life to be true and you're living into, because that, you know, that's called bondage. And he goes on and he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension. So this is any place that we have arrogance or areas of pride in our life and any place that says that, that where we say that we know better than God. This can be all kinds of things. These are the small things that again lead to a place of bondage of us living into things that are not true about ourselves or who God has made us to be. And Paul says the divine, this divine power that we've been given can demolish all those things. And then finally he says in verse 5, he says, and we are to take captive every thought. This is a, this is a, 
is the, probably the verse here that we're most somewhat familiar with. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The image here is that you're taking, he's talking about wep, weapons of war and warfare. So the image here is taking captive a prisoner of war. Most of us in this room, I don't know all your stories, but most of us do not have a concept of what it means to take a prisoner of war. Um, we see it in movies. Maybe we've heard the stories in our own families from previous generations. And we think we have like a decent understanding, but we don't actually know what that means. Okay? We, we may have to sit in that for a while. He's saying take captive. There's going to be pretension. There's going to be arguments. There are going to be strongholds. So my exhortation to you, he says, is that we have the ability to actually take captive the thoughts that lead us to those places and make those thoughts obedient to Christ. You know, in the context of military conflict, to take a prisoner of war is a matter of life or death. That's what it comes down to. Because if you sit down and decide you're going to have a snack with your prisoner, if you get too relaxed and too casual, he just might overpower you, and it's a matter of life and death. There's no wiggle room here. This is, this is why Paul uses this language. It's a serious thing. And then, then I, I look at this, take captive. How many thoughts? What thoughts? Every thought. Making it obedient to Christ. So we take our thoughts captive, and Jesus uh, gets to tell us, we, we bring them to him, and he gets to tell us what's actually true about the argument that we're having in our head. He gets to tell us what's actually true about the arrogance that we walk around with or that we carry in our hearts. He tells us what's true about the strongholds that exist in our lives. And if we would just listen to his voice in that moment, it would change the game. So Paul understood something that many of us miss. He understood that in order for us to live into the truth, to live into the story of who you really are over who you think you are, over who you've been told maybe all your life that you are, all that's going to start in your mind because ultimately your thoughts are the author of your narrative script. The script lives somewhere in your mind. And that's why Paul's exhorting us so strongly to take captive every single thought. And the beautiful thing is that with this divine power that we've been given, we not only have the ability to demolish untrue narrative scripts in our lives, but we have the opportunity to replace them with the truth. So let's talk about your narrative script. Let's talk about why it matters. Why it matters for us to kind of get a grip on this. And then I want to talk about how we identify the scripts in our lives. So what is a narrative script? Well, at its most basic level, these scripts are messages that inform the way we behave. That's what, that's what we mean by a narrative script. The messages that inform the way we behave. They're they're little messages given to us predominantly and largely from our family of origin. And you're like, oh darn it, you had to go there. And also from outside places or from events or from experiences that shape the way that we actually live our lives. And then on top of that, it's like all the little messages that we've been picking up over time gets added in and contributes to the story that we're presenting to the world. That's what a narrative script is. And most of our scripts come from our childhood or through relationships with our parents. They can also come through key events like divorce or death or abuse or abandonment, whatever, that, whatever it might be. So our narrative scripts are comprised of three things. They're comprised of events, emotions, and interpretations. Events are just what they sound like. It could be as simple as uh, a one-time traumatic event like the loss of a parent or 
a divorce or a rejection in a relationship. I just want to say this to you. So often, especially as you kind of get on into your life and especially as you kind of, I'm going to say as you approach middle age for sure, so often it's easy to minimize the events in your life. You're like, I should be over that by now. That didn't affect me. I've moved on. But if you're actually on a journey to discover what your script is, nothing is off the table. So a lot of our scripts come from the everyday life experiences that we had in childhood and that we continue to have. So I just want to encourage you to pay close attention to those. Events can also be repeated patterns. Repeated events, you know, create and cultivate and contribute to our narrative scripts, no doubt about that. So events, we get that. Traumatic events, we get that. Negative, repeated patterns, we get that. Then there's emotions. Those are the feelings and the thoughts, right, around the events. And again, the tendency is to dismiss our feelings. And maybe that was modeled for you. Maybe that's been encouraged in you. It's not healthy to continue to dismiss our feelings about that. It's important to keep them on the table. Now, some of us in this room are less prone to feel. You know who you are. Maybe you've chosen not to. You know, you've chosen not to deal with your emotions. It's not necessarily in your natural makeup, but you've just decided this is too painful. I'm not going to deal with this. We're going to set that aside. You're just going to shut that down. Maybe you feel overwhelmed at the thought of doing that, of dealing with the emotions that are associated with some event or some pattern of, of events in your life, so you've just have avoided that altogether. Some of you might think, well, that's just a waste of time. I just want to say this with all the love I can muster, and I just have a ton of it. Thank you. Emotions have and will continue to play a critical role in your relational development. And the longer you suppress and neglect and ignore the emotions in your life, the longer you delay and even impede the relational growth that God has called you to live into. And I know we're not all naturally like feelers, because some of us are thinkers, but we all feel on some level, because we're experiential people. This is how God designed and created us. God's given us the ability to deal with and to sit in our emotions. Jesus himself felt things and experienced things and sat in those emotions. And I believe he's calling us to be the same way. So our narrative script, we have events, we have emotions, and then we have interpretations. Our interpretation of events and the emotions that surrounded those events, this is where our script is actually formed. Because so often our interpretation becomes a part of our identity. Yeah. Interpretation of events and emotions is a powerful thing. And it's so important for us to be mindful about the things that we've interpreted, just to be aware of what those are. For instance, if you find yourself trying to understand what was happening in your family when you were growing up and you think about your parents' divorce, for example, you're trying to figure that out, the truth is most children of divorce, at some point, at, that's the, at some level of their understanding, they interpreted that they were responsible for that event. And you might be going, oh, I really want to nod along with that, but that's awkward. So, because you understand. Because you've been there, you wrestle with that yourself. 
In your adult brains now, you know that's not true. You look back and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. This parent was a jerk and that one wasn't so great either or whatever. I don't know. That's, that's another story. You weren't here. You know, you weren't, you're sitting here and you know you weren't responsible for your parents' breakup, right? You understand that as an adult. But the interpretation of that event jammed a script into your mind that's so powerful that a lot of people are crippled in their future relationships because of that. You struggle in relationships today because of that. Struggle in your marriage today because of that. You struggle in your relationships with your own children because of that, because of how you interpreted some events in your life, because of the way that you've interpreted emotions that you ex experienced surrounding that event, because of the script that was formed in your mind, how it has informed you about who you are and how you should act. So the interpretation of an event is far more powerful than most of us recognize and maybe are willing to admit. And so it's important to identify the events and the emotions that surrounded them, and most importantly, our interpretations of those events and emotions, because that's going to tell you exactly the narrative that you are believing and living into. So, why does the narrative script matter? If the narrative script that plays over and over in your mind has the power to shape your life, and it does, then it's easy to conclude that they matter. And I think most of you would at least would agree, at least in theory, that this is a really powerful thing. But you might be thinking, yeah, I can see how that would really be. Because you're thinking of somebody else right now, and you're like, that could be really helpful for them, but it's probably not a big deal for me. <laughs> I'm here to tell you it's a big deal for, big deal for all of us untrue, unhealthy narratives have had power over many of us for a long time. And whether we notice it or not, they are absolutely influencing the way that we engage in relationships with the people that we love. With our spouse, with our kids, with our friends, with our boss, with our coworkers. Shaping and influencing how we are in relationships. The intimacy intimacy level that we are having with other people. It's impacting our view of that. It's impacting our worldview, how we actually see the whole world at large, whether they are good scripts or bad scripts. So here's the thing. Many of us are living into untrue narrative scripts. And they have weird and crazy and powerful effects. And some of us are bitter and we hate ourselves. We don't say that, but we live that way. Some of us don't know how to receive love because at our core, we're buying into the script that I am absolutely unlovable. I Don't try to love me because I am unlovable. I am unworthy of that. So stay away and don't get too close. Some of us feel deep loneliness and hopelessness. And have considered hurting ourselves or even taking our lives because we're believing some lie some untrue script that says we are the problem, and if you eliminate the problem, then you have the solution. Some of us are buying into a script that leads into crippling anxiety, and we just can't take the next step forward. Listen. Your narrative script, the story you're believing and living into, will shape you and influence you. It will own you until you own it. Until you acknowledge the power 
that it's had in your life. Remember the story guru I mentioned at the opening, Bobette Buster? She says this, she says, a good story is comprised of two components, reinvention and redemption. I couldn't agree more. If you don't have those two components in your story, the story is what they call in the business a flop. I don't know about you, I don't want a story that flops. Do you know why I don't? Because the creator of the universe made me in such a way that I'm supposed to be telling a story that changes everything. It's an eight to my person to not want the story to flop because I have a reinvented and redeemed narrative bursting out of me. The same is true for all of us. We are people who live in the kingdom that Jesus talked about and ushered in, which means we live in a brand new reality. We have access, like Paul said, to divine power. And no matter what our scripts have been, no matter how it's determined our behavior to this day, we have this extraordinary opportunity, if we'll only own what these scripts are, to be reinvented and redeemed. To have the scripts that were immovable and impenetrable blown up and demolished and destroyed and then given an entirely new, better one. This is what God's created us for. This is what he's called us to and he is the author of every good story and he's calling us to live into his story. So, how do we identify our scripts? How do we do that? You can probably guess what I'm going to say first. But you've got to go back. Got to go back in your mind to your family of origin. Because the majority of messages come from your mom or your dad or the primary caretakers in your life. And this is powerful. Our parents had a significant influence on our personality and on our emotional development and on our behavioral habits and on our relational skills. Meaning how you related and who you learned from and what you observed all communicated messages to you. Same is true from significant events or significant ongoing repeated patterns in your life. So all these things require you to go back. So where do we go? Well, we can go to our memory. Memory is a gift that God has given us to build intimacy and relationship. Almost all of our scripts live in our memory. It's where we actually received that. So if you're wondering where to start, you start with memories. You start with memories that are the most accessible to you, the things that you can remember. So remember that. Sit in that. And then work back from there. And wherever there's low-hanging fruit in your memory, in your story, in your family of origin, grab that and start there and say, God, how is this contributing to the script I've been living? This is what I can remember. How is this contributing to what I've come to believe about myself and about you and about the world that I live in? So number one, go back. Number two, tell your story. Most of us don't tell our stories because we don't believe they're worthy of being told. Here's the thing. If and when we tell our story, we will quickly see the things that we need to see about what we believe, listen, about ourselves. And storytelling is significant because it informs us of who we, we, we hear those words coming out of our mouths, it informs us of who we believe we are and where we fit into the bigger story, the story that God is telling. So tell your story to the people in your inner circle, your spouse. That, I know that seems like I shouldn't have to say that, but your spouse needs to know, you. Oh, we've been married for you know, 34 years, I don't know. Tell the story. Your kids at an appropriate age, need to hear and know your story. 
you wonder why, our, we wonder sometimes why our kids repeat behavior that was part of our lives that they never even saw, but they're repeating it. Perhaps it's because we haven't told the story. Your grandkids, your small group, your inner circle of friends, tell your story. And next, pray. All of this requires the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Without it, without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this could just be a really dark experience. The role of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate, to shine light on truth. Invite him into this process. Because I don't think you can address things in a healthy way, in a way that is consistent with the story God wants you to tell without the Holy Spirit guiding you. Oh, also, there is one person who's borne witness to everything in your story, and his name is Jesus. He's been tracking with you since you were thought in your creator's mind. He's the only one who has the right to take you back to places that you would never take yourself. He's trustworthy enough to take you back and help you understand what's actually true, to see things as they really are. Some of you were too little to see what was really happening. You were too young to understand what was truth in your situation. But only God can take you back in the present and show you and say, I was there. I saw what happened. I know the truth. And hear me, where the Spirit of the Lord is in your memories, in these places, in this process, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. When he goes back and takes you to those places, you are set free in your story. Those deep parts of you are changed forever. So if you're wondering how to get free from that, this is how. Next, be in community. This is really hard. This is a really hard step for a lot of you if this is if this is the like if your narrative script tells you you're not worthy of community. Why would somebody want to know you as you really are? If they did, they wouldn't want to be in community with you. This is why I'm, I said invite the Holy Spirit in first before we take this step. You need people in your life who are going to tell you what's true. We all need that. If you don't have truth tellers in your life, uh, get some. And if you aren't sure who to ask, just start asking some people. Ask some people whose lives are taking a track that you like, yes, that's a good example for me. I want that person to be the person. And if they, if, if they don't follow through and speak truth, you can be their friend. Find someone else to speak truth. You need, you need truth tellers in your life. I don't know how you learn what's true without truth tellers. And finally... We're to take our thoughts, to take them prisoner, and to bring them to Jesus. It can sound really ambiguous and very Christianese to take captive my thoughts and make them obedient. All it means is a thought comes to your mind and you're like, I'm going straight to Jesus with this one. Like, Jesus, what's this thing? And he's like, well, that's a good thing. And you're like, great, you know? And then another one, you're like, Jesus, there's this idea that I'm like, I'm not, I'm so not good enough. And I've had it this morning again. And I, I keep hearing this. That I'm not good enough. And, and you can't do this. And you can't accomplish this. And you take it to Jesus. And, and he's like, well, uh, that one's kind of true because you're not. But hey, I am good enough. I am everything you need. I am enough. And in me, so are you. That's what said that you can't change your past, but you can change the way you experience it. So 
discovering and identifying the narrative scripts that have shaped your life, I know this can be painful for just about everybody at some point. More painful for some than for others. And I know those things are deeply linked to, to memories that are extraordinarily hard and difficult. But on the other side of that is healing and there's freedom. On the other side of that is a brand new story. When we allow God to change our narrative script, he changes the way we view and experience our lives. I know this has been heavy this morning, and um, thank you for hanging with me. I just want to encourage you to keep those, those five steps kind of in front of you. Come back to that. Engage in the process. And would you, in humility, find the courage to bring your narrative scripts to Jesus? Invite the Holy Spirit to speak a better word into your life than has been spoken. Listen to this song.